hey, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and we are so glad you're with us. I want to welcome everybody that's worshiping with us via the internet and at our other locations in Pike Road, Wetumpka, and out at Prattville West Side. We're glad you're all with us today. So um, uh, inside your bulletin, you will find an outline where we're headed today, and we're talking about Jesus reveals his identity. We're going through Mark, some, we're hitting some highlights out of the gospel of Mark, and we're trying to capture the flavor of Mark's gospel where Mark wanted you to see Jesus in action. So there'd be a miracle after miracle after miracle, an outstanding uh, teaching after outstanding teaching, or in this case where Jesus is going to be glorified and then he does an amazing uh, miracle in casting a demon out of a demon-possessed boy. We're talking about these things today that will happen in Mark chapter 9, and it's really incredible when you see Jesus in action, and Mark wanted us to experience that, much like uh, if you went to a, a DVD and you went to scene selection and you go car crash, explosion, major flood, tornado, which would be like my favorite movie right there, okay? You know, and you go and select the scene. Well, then I want you to think of the two points that we're hitting today out of Mark 9, a lot like that, that Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples and he casts a demon out of a demon-possessed boy. And you'd select on it, and Mark's whole account and the way it's set up is so we'll see him in action and then we'll put our faith in Jesus as the son of God as a result. I mean, that's Mark 1, he says, this is the good news. This is the gospel account of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he wants us to believe. And so today is no exception. And today, uh, it'll be real important as we see Jesus' identity revealed, why it matters that we know who he is and what his mission is, and how you and I need to stay focused on those things and stay attached to him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. I thank you that Mark was faithful to record what you inspired him to write. And Lord, I pray that those words will just leap into our hearts today and you will do business in our hearts and you will convince us stronger each and every time we read your word that you are who you say you are, the son of God, so we can put our faith in you and we can have a right relationship with you. We thank you for this day. I pray that you'll speak, that you move me out of the way, say whatever you want said to us today in the name of Christ. Amen need a pen, by the way, uh, raise your hand. If you didn't grab it on the way in, you want to take some notes on this today, um, the ushers would be glad to bring one to you. Uh, point one, Jesus is transfigured in front of his three disciples, in front of three of his disciples, I should say. Uh, Twelve disciples, he took three of them with him. Uh, and something amazing happened in Mark 9, started verse 2 and 3 here. Six days later, we'll get back to what had happened six days earlier in just a minute. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. That's what transfigured means. If you've ever heard of the Mount of Transfiguration, it's from this, that expression comes from this passage right here. Jesus was on a mountain and his appearance was transformed. And his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And I just have a note inserted here that Jesus was revealing a glimpse of the heavenly glory that he laid aside, the heavenly glory that he laid aside in order to become one of us. His disciples were seeing him for who he really was. They're getting a glimpse of his heavenly glory. I mean, it's one thing, again, for them to come to a, an awareness, as we've seen him through miracles and things, they're going, who is this man when he calms the seas and calms a storm? But to see him in his glory, this impacted them at another whole level. Philippians 2, Paul reminds us of this, that though he was God, Jesus didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And apparently a very ordinary looking human being. 
I mean, people weren't drawn to him because of his great beauty or his great height or his great muscular build. I mean, he just looked like the son of Mary and Joseph. I mean, even his siblings, his brothers, uh, the other kids that Mary and Joseph had, they didn't look at him as anything special. They thought he was out of his mind when he was doing some of his teaching in other times. They were coming to rescue him at one point. His enemies thought he must be possessed by the devil himself, and that's how he was able to do some of these outstanding feats that they would consider things that were inspired by the devil. I mean, he doesn't look like the Son of God until he went up on top of that mountain, and then the disciples saw him in his heavenly glory. He laid all that aside. He became one of us so he could rescue us. I mean, don't miss this. And Mark says it's important you understand that when they come on top of this mountain, the glory of the Lord was shining out through him. His clothes were dazzling white, whiter than it could ever be bleached. This is God's power and his glory on display in Jesus. And there's more. Well, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, uh, Moses was the man that, whom God had chosen to lead the children of Israel out of slavery. He'd been in slavery hundreds of years to the Egyptians. And Moses was the man whom God used to call them out, to lead them out. And he did a number of miracles through Moses, and Moses was obedient and was a great leader. God also gave the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses, and all the instructions on how to build a tabernacle, how to offer sacrifices. So Moses would represent the Old Testament law and God's commands and leading people out of slavery. Along with him appeared Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah had come on the scene at a time when Israel had strayed far from God. They were worshiping false gods and bowing down to idols. And God punished them and called them back to him. And he used Elijah to demonstrate his powerful and amazing way to call people back to him. Elijah's name even means the Lord is God. To call people back to a right relationship with God. And so here uh, here are Moses and Elijah with Jesus on top of the mountain the one who received the law and one who had led the children of Israel out of slavery and the one who had called people back to right relationship with God were up on top of the mountain speaking with Jesus. The one who came to not just lead people out of slavery to Egypt, to lead us out of slavery to sin and death, and not just to call us back to a right relationship with Jesus, but to make that way possible. And it's going to be very clear to uh, Peter, James, and John that Jesus is greater than either of these two great heroes of the Old Testament. So then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters and memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. If you're going, well, that doesn't really make any sense. He's going to put up little tents for them to stay up there. It's like, yeah, Mark even goes, yeah, that really is a bad idea. So let's just move on. Okay, well, then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved, dearly loved son, Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around, and Moses and Elijah were gone, and only Jesus was with them. And so the idea here is that Moses was a great hero, a great leader. Jesus is more still. Elijah was a great prophet, called people back to a right relationship. Jesus was greater still. Because the voice from heaven, our Heavenly Father, said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Now, all this matters. You just keep all this in file. You can underline that and keep that in file here because this is all going to matter in a minute. 
Suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. Only Jesus was with them. So they went back down the mountain, and he told them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until after, uh, until after the Son of Man uh, had risen from the dead. Uh, so they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. I mean, what is that? So Jesus responded to them, and he said some other things about John the Baptist and Elijah, but I'm just in the highlights here. Why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? Now, all of this fits in when you understand that six days later, he'd taken him up on top of this mountain. Here's the next note. It was really important. Here's why all this is important. It was vitally important to Jesus that his disciples correctly embrace his identity and his mission. His identity and his mission. Because as they watched him in action... There were things that they didn't understand. They were coming to a very clear awareness that he was indeed the Son of God. And last week we went through a series of the miracles. They were marveling at him, how he was stronger than the devil, and he was stronger than death, and stronger than disease, stronger than nature itself. And they were marveling, what kind of person is he? Well, he's the Son of God. And he's making that abundantly clear to him, but not only clear that he's the Son of God, but the mission that he'd come to accomplish. And they were completely confused about this. And that's why the whole business about rising from the dead, and he's saying, well, why does it say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly? I mean, if he's the Son of God, why is he going to suffer? And if he's the Son of Man, what is this? Now, six days earlier, let me get back to that real quickly. Six days earlier, Jesus had been walking with his disciples, and he asked them this question. Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and Others say, you're one of the prophets. And then, they, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, well, you're the Messiah. Well, the whole idea here also is this. It's like, I mean, this is important that they understand, hey, he's not Moses. He's not Elijah. He's the son of God. Now, it was obvious on the mountain there, he couldn't be Moses and Elijah. They were standing next to him. He wasn't a reincarnation of John the Baptist who'd been beheaded. He's the son of God. And the voice of God the Father himself made that abundantly clear. But he goes on to say this, and then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He'd be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God, and here's my mission. Now, for those of us who've been around church and have been to Sunday school and have heard all these stories many times, realize they had not experienced Easter. And even though Jesus was telling them that he was coming to suffer and die on the cross and that he would rise from the dead on the third day, that hadn't happened yet. And they didn't understand it. All the stories that they'd heard was a great deliverer would come, a Messiah would come, who'd be this mighty king, this mighty warrior like David. David had killed Goliath with a sling and a stone, and this Messiah would come and drive the Romans away and set up a new kingdom. This is what many people believed, uh, a new, big, powerful government for the nation of Israel. Restore Israel. And so when Jesus is coming saying that he's going to suffer and die, Peter is jumping up and saying, hey, Jesus, you've got to quit talking like that. If you're the Messiah, then you're the king, and we'll defend you. And this is the note here. Peter projected his faulty expectations of the Messiah on Jesus. And so 
Peter's saying, we'll protect you, Jesus. Jesus didn't need Peter's protection. He didn't need him to protect him at all. He needed Peter to follow him. Now, all this matters because we have faulty understandings of who Jesus is today, too. We have politically correct understandings of who we think Jesus needs to be, and people would reprimand us, or they'll re- we would reprimand Jesus himself, many people in our culture today, if we start saying, because Jesus said all kinds of things that aren't politically correct today. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, and I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I mean, it's really important that we understand that when the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, that he's the son of God, that he and the Father are one. Islam disagrees with this completely. In our culture today, if you say, hey, there's one way to heaven and not that Christianity is just a way, there are many people who would reprimand Jesus. You can't go around saying stuff like that. Jesus, that's not politically correct. I mean, if we started talking about that Jesus said things that People don't agree with, well, in Matthew 4, when Matthew says Jesus began his ministry, it says that Jesus came telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, quit talking like that. Quit telling people to repent. I mean, our definition of Messiah is somebody who's just all love. You don't have to repent. You don't have to repent of anything. God's okay with sin. Just don't call it sin. Don't tell people there's one way. Any way works, as long as you're sincere. Now, they had issues in their day, and we have issues in our day. But Jesus wasn't worried about our issues. He wasn't worried about Peter's issues. He was telling him, because Peter was telling him, hey, you can't suffer and die. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, you're talking like the devil here. You're trying to keep me from carrying out the mission for which I came. Now, if you flip your outline over, this is how it applies to you and me. You and I need to embrace Jesus' identity and his mission as revealed in the Bible. This is why virtually every week in a prayer or in some other way, we'll talk about the Bible's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. If the Bible's our guide, then we accept Jesus for how he reveals himself through his word, how God reveals himself through his word. And this is important because this is how we know who Jesus is. This is how we know how to find salvation. This is how we understand a right way to relate, relate to him. Peter talked about this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, look, we are not making up clever stories. We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. He's talking about this exact event. This is years later in the letter that we call Second Peter. He's writing about the transfiguration. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard the voice from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. This is why it's so important that we understand the Bible and we embrace what it teaches us so we can relate to God rightly. Peter 
was bringing in his own faulty ideas. And we can bring in our own homespun theologies about, well, Jesus is this and Jesus is that, and never even compare it if we don't know God's word over how he really reveals himself to us in the Bible. And this is what's important. And so Jesus in action, the transfiguration, the disciples, three of the disciples see him in all of his glory. And he's way more than they thought he was. And it matters. And that brings us to point two. Jesus drives out an evil spirit. He drives an evil spirit out of a little boy. Right after this has happened, Jesus and the disciples come down the mountain. And as they're walking down the mountain, they've had this amazing experience. And Peter and James and John are still scratching their heads over what does this mean about rising from the dead? And why is he going to suffer? And what's all that? And they're still thinking about this. And as they get down, there's a big commotion. The other nine disciples have been doing ministry, and something's gone terribly wrong. Uh, Jesus had sent them all out earlier to go out and proclaim good news, to heal people, to cast out demons. But there's a boy who is brought to Jesus' disciples. His dad brings him, and this is a boy who is demon-possessed, and he goes into seizures. And when the disciples try to cast the demon out, they can't. And so here's what happened. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. And when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What's all this arguing about, Jesus asked. And one of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father, and he replied, well, since he was a little boy. And the spirit often throws him into the fire, into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. And if you don't align this next part, what do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. And would you say that last phrase together with me, please? Anything is possible if a person believes. Well, then the father instantly cried out, oh, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead, and a murmur ran through the crowd as the people said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer, or in some translations, by prayer and fasting. Now, I want to make a couple of observations here. It's a lot to study here. And again, this is Jesus in action. They've just come from this mountaintop experience where Jesus is revealed to be the Son of God, and they walk down, down into ministry, where they go from this Amazing experience where the voice of God is identifying Jesus as the Son of God. The voice of God the Father is identifying Jesus as God the Son. And it's all wonderful. But then they go back down why Jesus came to earth, and they find themselves in a place where the disciples who are remaining there have blown it. They failed in carrying out 
an act of ministry. They're arguing over religion. The devil is running uh, wild, and there's all kinds of people talking. And apparently the disciples have a very, the other nine disciples had a very undisciplined prayer life. So if you've ever felt like you failed at ministry, if you've ever been discouraged because there is evil in the world, if you've ever felt like you have an undisciplined prayer life, then this story applies to you. But if you don't, well, then you shouldn't be here anyway. No, I would tell you that this applies to all of us. And Jesus is going to teach them a very important lesson from all this. First of all, I had you talk, we stopped and I had you talk about if any, uh, anything's possible, if a person believes, I had you say that with me. The boy's father was the one who realized that, hey, Jesus is the only one who can figure this out. The disciples were arguing with religious leaders who had come to find fault with Jesus' ministry. The disciples were arguing with them over the right way, possibly, I guess, to cast out a demon or who had true authority and who was doing it right and all this stuff. Well, they're just arguing the crowd is looking. The boy is not getting healed. And Jesus goes, oh, how long do I have to put up with you? Bring the boy to me. But when the father came and talked to him, it was so interesting because the, boy, the boy's father said, hey, I'd love for him to be healed. I, can you help him? I mean, if you can, can you do something? And the point I want to make out of this is, the point I want to bring out of this is, the question is about, it wasn't whether God could heal him, it was whether the boy's father had any faith. If you want to know how this applies to you and me, this happens all the time. Uh, people come to see me in my office, and it's not about a demon-possessed boy, but it could be about um, a relationship that's strained, and the communication hadn't happened in years. They're not talking anymore, and I go, well, let's stop and let's pray that God will soften their heart. And I have people that do this all the time. They go, they'd laugh out loud, and they go, oh, whatever. I mean, there's no sense praying over that. Or there's no, they don't know how to move forward with their job situation. They have no idea where to go. And they go, it's hopeless. I mean, you can pray if you want to. And basically, we'd be saying exactly what the Father was saying, that it's like, um, have mercy on us and help us if you can. And people go, okay, you can pray. I mean, you can pray that God will help us. I mean, if he can. I mean, think if we sell God short like this. It's not a question of whether or not Jesus had the power. The question is whether the little boy's father would even believe. And many times we fail to pray. We don't believe God can really do things. We don't believe he can really change hearts, that he can really open opportunities, that he can guide us through things that have been a complete mystery to us before. And maybe God brought you here today because today you are dealing with the exact situation and you need to be reminded that anything is possible if a person believes. Would you say that with me, please? Anything is possible if a person believes. Don't you quit praying for that friend who's lost. Don't you quit praying for that opportunity. Don't you quit praying for a relationship to be healed. Why do we set limits on God like this? And we do it all the time. The little boy's father was the wise one here. And Jesus goes, well, anything's possible if you believe. And he goes, oh, then please help me with my faith. And the right answer is, if we've given up praying or we've never even tried praying because we think things are hopeless, that's the right answer. And say, well, then please help me with my unbelief. But here's a life application for us at the top of the next page. We'll never be effective in ministry, another one here, unless we stay closely uh, connected to, G to Jesus. We'll never be effective in ministry. The disciples were going, well, how come we couldn't cast the demon out? 
if you flipped a few chapters forward to in Matthew 6, you'd find that Jesus had sent them out to cast out demons in his name, and they'd done it. But this one, they couldn't. They said, how come we couldn't do it? And apparently they thought, well, if you told us to cast out demons, it'll work in any and every situation. We don't need to come and talk to you about this. You know, this is just apparently, maybe we didn't use the right incantation, the right formula. And Jesus is trying to teach them, no, guys, I mean, this is about being rightly related to me. John 15, there's much clearer teaching on this, very clear teaching on this. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And one of the things that Jesus wanted them to understand is there are some problems that are going to require prayer. There are some issues that are going to require greater understanding. There are some demons that will not be driven out just by a simple command, apparently, that this kind can only come out by prayer. And he wanted to make this clear to them. This isn't about, hey, okay, now we don't ever have to come to Jesus again. He gave us an answer to this prayer five years ago. We don't need to ever pray about anything again. This is about, Jesus said, no, I want you to remain in me all the time. And what he's talking about here fits exactly with what he told the disciples when they were supposed to pray. This goes to the next life application. Private, personal time in prayer is vital for us to stay closely connected to Jesus. Now, I don't know why those verses from John 15 were put in there again. Maybe the printer determined that we needed to read them again or something. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. Uh, But anyway, uh, but I would like to go down to Luke 5.16 here where it says, As often as possible, Jesus withdrew out to out-of-the-way places for prayer. As often as possible, he went and found an isolated place to pray. When he was telling his disciples how to pray, he said, Look, when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private, and then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Years ago, a friend of mine taught me about this, and he got this from uh, the Navigators. He wanted to remind, uh, he was trying to teach me about this, because he said, John, you need to learn something about your prayer life. That God wants to speak to you and give you direction for your life. He loves you and wants to guide you. He wants you to... He wants you to know his plan for you more than you want to know his plan for you. And the primary way that God speaks to us is through the Bible. Well, the primary way that then we talk to God is through prayer. And when you're coming back to this whole idea that we're going to spend time in prayer, well, what would we be praying about? Many of us, our understanding of prayer is just a laundry list or a gift list, a wish list of things that we want God to do for us. God, I want a promotion. God, I want this. God, I want that. God, I want this. And God, I want that. And that's our prayer list. But when the Bible is talking about prayer, and when Jesus is talking about having a meaningful relationship with God, it's talking about things like when Jesus would go off by himself in private, out-of-the-way places for extended periods. He'd pray all night before he chose the disciples. After he had a hard ministry day, the next morning he bowed early at a place all by himself at an isolated place. And this friend of mine, when he showed him this, he said, John, you've got to understand something. You separate things into it. Uh, two parallel ideas that need to be one. He said, you read your Bible, right? And sometimes God shows you stuff. And I go, oh, yeah. And, and so I, I'd learned how to read the Bible, and I'd go, yeah, I'm, taking, I'm even writing some things down. He goes, well, what are you praying about regarding that? I went, I don't know. Because what was happening was, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm understanding some concepts of what God 
uh, is saying to me from this. And then if you look at my prayer list, my prayer list would be for Aunt Gladys's gallstones or for at that time when I'm in college, hey, this is the right professor. I want this class. So all my prayers had to do with stuff that just came from me and it never reflected what God had just told me. He said, what if you tied it together so in your personal devotions, you would read the Bible and you'd write down a few things that God was saying to you today, an application, and you'd say, oh God, I needed to hear this today. And then what if you made that your first prayer request, going, God, this is what I think I need to change. God, this is something I need to confess. God, would you please help me with my unbelief? What if we understood that God wants us to have a conversation with him, where we read his word and apply it to our lives and then align ourselves with him? Well, that completely changed the way I think about prayer. I mean, that goes to the last life application. Our faith will grow as our relationship with God grows. See, when I read the Bible and I see how God rescued Moses and I see how God rescued David, when I see how God... Uh, worked through his people, and then I'm going to learn how God's going to rescue me. And I can say, God, I want you to teach me the same things you taught Moses. I want you to teach me the same things you taught David. And God, I want to rely on you the way they did. Would you help me with this? I want to align with you the way David did, the way Peter did. And when I discover something that's completely out of whack in my life where I'm sinful and wrong or stubborn, Lord, will you change my heart? I want to get in line with you. Now look, When my wife and I got married, I mean, to draw a parallel to this, my wife speaks to me, and she wants me to speak to her. This is why when we go to a restaurant, she always wants to go to a place with a booth with no TV screens. So we have to have conversation, whether I want to or not. Okay, that's the way it's going to work. We're talking. Okay? I mean, she doesn't go for the action movie thing. She likes Pride and Prejudice, but that's a different thing. Okay, anyway, but we'll move on. No action sequences. Okay, but, but the idea is that um, if we're going to have conversations, we're going to have this deep and meaningful conversation. Well, I get to know her. She gets to know me. That's what she wants. She wants the relationship. Well, do you know that over 30, almost 31 years now, we've married almost 31 years, as we go through this, through these conversations, we have built incredible trust with each other. I know what she thinks about a whole lot of things. When we first got married, people ask, hey, what do you think Debbie thinks about this? I go, I don't know. I'll have to ask her. Now they'll say, what do you think about this? Oh, I know what she thinks. Okay. And sometimes there's even a story that goes with it. And that's the way it works with God. We'll, we'll know God and we'll know, what do you think God thinks about this? And there's even a story that goes with it. And I've prayed about this, and this is how he's taught me this in my life. I mean, the reason we put it's all about relationships on the cover of your bulletin is because it's all about relationships. Right relationships with God and right relationships with each other. Now, well, John, well, then why did Mark record this just as he did? So the Mount of Transfiguration right down into the valley with the demon-possessed boy. Well, if Jesus is the Son of God, then we need to stay connected to him. If he's not the Son of God, you don't. He is the Son of God. Stay connected to him. There are some problems you can never handle on your own. There are many, many problems you can't handle. Stay connected to me and you'll be all right. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. And now, just as you accepted Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus is your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots go down into him. Let your lives be built on him. 
And then your faith will grow strong through the relationship as we grow down into him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. This is true. Peter said, we didn't invent cleverly designed stories to trick you. We were there on the mountain. I saw him transformed. I heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter's the one who had to realize that he was bringing all of his faulty understandings about what God was like to Jesus and pushing them on Jesus. He thought he had to defend Jesus when Jesus just wanted him to follow him. You know what Jesus wants for you and me today? He wants us to follow him. So let's tie it all together. Maybe today, as I was talking, maybe today, just in these few verses that we read, God spoke to you. And you've been selling him short. And you realize, I'm just like that father. I don't believe he can really do this. I quit praying about it because I said, it's no use praying, they'll never change. And you gave up. And today, God reminded you, don't give up. Well, we're going to pray in just a minute. And we're going to tell God, God, I heard what you said today. I'm sorry. Please, please increase my faith and help me not give up. Maybe today you realize, hey, I haven't been spending quality time with God. I mean, I go to church. I go through the formula. Maybe I'm even in a small group, but I'm not really spending quality time with God. My relationship with him isn't growing, and I'm not experiencing God's power. My roots aren't down deep in him. I'm not in private time with him. I mean, if you don't think we need this, flip your outline over to the last page. After all the small group discussion questions, there's a quote by Ann Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter. I'm going to put this in there to encourage us. Ann Graham Lotz says, To be honest, I'm afraid not to make time to pray. I don't want to miss out on the power that is necessary to really help others. I don't want to miss out on the power that's necessary to impact the world around me. I don't want to miss out on the power of prayer that moves heaven and changes nations, but I will miss out if I don't make the time to draw aside with him in private prayer. That's Billy Graham's kid saying she doesn't pray enough. If Billy Graham's kid needs to be reminded of this, chances are I do. Okay, none of you even nodding. Okay, I'm the only one. This was meant to be an encouragement. If Billy Graham's kids don't pray well enough, then maybe you and I don't pray well enough. She's writing this saying, I need to make a more intentional effort. So if today God spoke to you about that, then we're going to pray about that. So we're going to pray about those two things right now. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you that your word is our guide in all matter of faith and practice, matters of faith and practice. And Lord, you are guiding us today. Lord, if we have sold you short, if you have sold the Lord short right now where you are and said, he can't do this. Basically saying, well... There'd be an answer to prayer. I guess you could do it, Lord. I mean, if you can. And if you've stopped praying, you've given up on a relationship, you've given up on direction, you've given up on forgiveness, you've given up on some other thing that you know you know you were praying about for a while and you've just quit because it's too hard. Would you say, God, would you increase my faith? Help me with my unbelief. Forgive me. I'm just like that little boy's dad. Or today, maybe you came here today and you realize, well, I, I go to worship and I pray, you know, when they lead us in prayer at worship or I'll say thanks for my meal a couple times a week, but I don't really pray. I don't really sit down and 
talk to God and try to align myself with him, if that's been made clear to you and, you, and that's something that you need help with, would you say, oh God, would you show me how to do this? God, I don't want to go through motions here. I don't want to be a surface Christian. I want to be the real thing. Increase my faith. Give me a hunger and a thirst for time with you alone. There are many problems I can't solve on my own. I have to stay connected to you. Oh God, we just thank you that you're always more ready to meet with us. And you're always more ready to listen than we are to pray. Father, forgive us. We're so distracted. Forgive us. We struggle with unbelief. We don't trust you. So help our relationship grow so we can trust you more. We thank you for this time together. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Amen.